There's a little bit of a, a dark ghost lurking in these readings that we've just heard from Holy Scripture. The problem of what to say about Judas has been a pebble in the shoe of Christianity from its earliest days. All four of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, they actually don't agree on very much about the sequencing of the events of Jesus' death, but on this point, they are unanimous. It was Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, part of his inner circle, who ultimately led the Roman authorities to him and betrayed his master with that infamous kiss in the garden. On the one hand, for these earliest Christians, Judas represented the very worst kind of evil, betrayal of the Son of God by one of his most trusted friends. And on the other hand, there was this dawning realization that without Judas, there was no story, right? He had a really significant role, maybe even a preordained role. That's a complicated thing to talk about. But as Jesus' stunned followers began to uh, try to make sense of his death, they turned to their sacred scripture, right, to Hebrew scripture, and they found there verses like a verse from Psalm 41, from the Psalms of David, even my best friend, whom I trusted, who broke bread with me, has lifted up his heel and turned against me. And so they said, aha, Judas is that one. Scripture was, was predicting that this would happen. Judas had become the betrayer. He played his role so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. That's a, thorny, <laughs> that, that's a thorny scriptural problem that raises, actually, I think a lot of uncomfortable questions about how God works. And I want to be really clear, right, despite a lot of theological hand-wringing over the centuries about the notion of double predestination, we can talk about that at another time, this idea that God has predestined or pre-horizoned some people for salvation and other people for destruction. That's an idea that Anglican and Episcopalian Christians have never held, right? The mainstream understanding has always been that God created human beings with free will and that the decisions that we make in this life are based in our own agency and the devices and desires of our hearts, as the prayer book's memorable phrase has it. We are responsible for our actions, not God. And still, the problem of Judas remains, if not a theological problem, then certainly a psychological one that many of us have navigated in our lives, right? What happens when somebody's choices or somebody's actions, somebody's words or their beliefs, what happens when that means they can no longer be a part of the family or a part of the, of the community? What sense do we make of the one who betrays us? This is the problem that the disciple Peter is looking at in this story from the book of Acts that we heard this morning. Jesus has ascended into heaven. Peter turns to the task of finding Judas's place, filling Judas's place among the 12 disciples. And so he addresses them. He says, friends, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit through David foretold concerning Judas, who became a guide for those arresting Jesus. And Jesus himself kind of plays with the same idea when he says in John's gospel, while I was with my followers, he's, Jesus is praying in this morning, right? He says to God, I protected my followers in your name. I guarded them and not one of them was lost except the one destined to be lost so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. That is a damning phrase, the one destined to be lost. There's an older translation of that phrase, uh, which has a much more sinister, chilling character. I think it comes from the King James Bible. In the King James Bible, Jesus says here, none of them was lost but the son of perdition. Whoa. If that doesn't send a chill up your spine, I don't know what will. Nobody wants to be the son of perdition. So what sense do we make of this one, right? Did God have this whole thing in mind? Was Judas kind of screwed up from the beginning? Was this all a part of God's plan? Did he make his own choices and we just have to accept the consequences? What sense do we make 
of somebody like Judas. Peter says Judas was numbered among us. He was allotted his share in our ministry. Those are his words to the other disciples. He was one of us. And Peter himself, remember, like Peter's no stranger to betrayal, right? He's the one who denied Jesus three times before the cock crowed. So the destiny of Judas, who, according to one story, hangs himself, and according to another story, falls in a field and is split open. We didn't actually... That part got edited out of the Acts reading where Peter's like, well, you know, this is what happened. He fell into a field. His bowels gushed out. We cleaned that up for you. You'll be very happy to know. Those of you who are a little squeamish will be glad to know that we bowdlerized the Bible for you this morning. Those of you who love the 13-year-old Bible obsession with blood and guts are bound to be a little bit disappointed. There's a lot of that in Acts. You didn't get to hear it this morning. But the destiny of Judas is a sobering one, I think, for Peter. Peter recognizes that you can't just dismiss Judas. You can't just neaten him out of the narrative. He casts too large of a shadow for that. He was one of us. We were his friends. We knew him. We heard his stories. We cared about him. He has a share. Maybe he still has a share in this ministry. Judas was ordained by Jesus to do a particular kind of work. He played his part Peter says, so that scripture might be fulfilled. Even the betrayer, it turns out, has a place in the, in the story, at least, and maybe a place at a deeper level in whatever God is doing. The insistence that these earliest texts place on reminding a, a potentially vindictive crowd that even the betrayer has a role in the story. That, inscript, that insistence on scripture being fulfilled, this long game that God is playing, I want to read Peter's insistence not actually as a belief in double predestination, but a way of reminding the faithful remnant, the 11 traumatized who are left to figure out the next steps of this little fledgling movement, a way of reminding them that none of us really have any idea what God is up to most of the time. We do our best, right? We have to. We do our best to be faithful. We pray. We trust in the Holy Spirit who searches the hearts of everyone. God, you know everybody's heart. And then they cast lots in the first, in the first century. That's not how we do it today. Uh, but we do our best, right, to make faithful decisions. We think we're on the right path. We think we're, you know, worshiping the right way, believing the right stuff, or whatever. It's all guesswork at the end of the day, right? Some of us have, have found our ways out of much stricter religious communities or, or earlier understandings of religion where that importance on getting it right, right, believing the right stuff, behaving the right way, not stepping out of bounds, not abandoning the faithful gathered, knowing you were right was understood as maybe the most important thing there was. And yet, even when we leave behind that idea that there's only one way, that there's only one truth, only one community, only one true faith, even as we begin to embrace a more complicated, diverse, pluralistic world, even when we, when we depart from the more doctrinaire practices and communities of our early formation, and we find ourselves in these, these messy, liberal places like the Episcopal Church where you don't have to believe anything as long as you starch the altar linen correctly, even still, we talked about this on my Bible study this morning, and one of our members said, you know, I was raised in a community like this. I've, I've been out of that world for 60 years. I still carry the lingering fear that I'm wrong. Communities like that do a kind of theological trauma to their children. They plant in us that deep, dark fear that can never really be assuaged, that maybe we're wrong. We have this little secret that, you know, we used to think that our eternal salvation depended on getting it right, and we're still a little nervous that when the final reckoning comes, we're going to end up in the wrong camp. 
Nobody wants to, you know, nobody wants to admit that. Nobody wants to admit that even when you come out of a community like that and think you've changed, like you end up enacting the same kinds of stuff in your new world, right? There's nobody that's more prone to cancel culture than liberal theological Twitter. I have gone afoul of it a couple times. Progressive Portland, it turns out, is just as shamey and judgy as the conservative church of my childhood. The problem of being right. I mean, look at the mask wearing debates that we're having, right? The problem of how you know you're right. That's not just a problem of the so-called less evolved religion. We carry it around with us, this still small voice that says, maybe things are not as neat and tidy as you think they are. Maybe you're wrong. Maybe you are Judas. Maybe you're the betrayer. One of the fun things about being Trinity's dean during these last complicated and sometimes very tense days of Black Lives Matter protests and contested political elections and mask mandates and shutdowns and reopenings, you name it, we've seen it. One of the fun things about my job is that some, when someone disagrees with a decision that the cathedral has made or a position or a sermon that one of us has preached, usually I get to hear about it. And sometimes that's just a simple disagreement, right? We sort of hash it out. Lately, it seems to me the, the disagreements and the divisions in this community have felt a little more fraught. In the past year, I've said uh, a, a sad goodbye to a few longtime parishioners who have decided for all kinds of reasons that it's time for them to worship somewhere else. And that's, I'm not gonna lie, that's been hard. What uh, a friend of mine said to me a couple weeks ago is she said, you know, I think it's time for me to, I'm gonna explore some other communities. They said, I no longer feel safe at Trinity. I used to feel safe and I don't feel that anymore. As somebody who's had the experience of feeling unsafe in a religious community and choosing to leave that community, that hit home for me. I know that feeling. I long for this cathedral to be a safe haven for absolutely everybody. That's what we say at that welcome table. That's what we say at this altar, that this is safe harbor. This is sanctuary for you, no matter who you are, no matter what you look like, no matter what, what you believe or don't believe. God's love is bigger than any political, social, theological, or ideological difference. I still believe that. And I also resonate with the truth of what my friend said. I no longer feel safe. If I'm being honest, I don't feel safe either most of the time. I used to walk into this building on a Sunday morning and flip on the light switch and 600 people would file in and fall into place. We knew our roles, we knew our parts, we knew how to do church. That's not true anymore. And I, I don't know how long it will be until that's true again. I used to feel pretty secure in this pulpit. And a year of preaching to an empty cathedral has really unsettled that for me. And actually, I think that's a good thing. I'm gradually letting go of my need to feel safe. I've decided it's okay for me not always to feel safe in this pulpit. Maybe it was not a good kind of safety that I used to feel, preaching these feel-good sermons about Downton Abbey and making everybody laugh and feel like we were part of the club. And maybe God has something more complicated but ultimately more transformative for us than safety. I think that true diversity, not just diversity of opinion, but diversity of experience and class and sexuality and race and belief, true diversity is not safe. It's messy. And I could be wrong. In fact, I probably am a lot of the time. Every time somebody makes an appointment to come talk to me about how they feel betrayed by Trinity or by me, by the direction we've taken the cathedral, every time I'm cast in the role of a Judas, 
I have to consider the fact that the person I'm speaking with could be right. Maybe I'm going about this in the wrong ways. Maybe I have something really important to learn from the person in front of me. And so sitting with people I care about, right, people whom I have walked through some of the, the darkest moments in their lives, people I have come to think of not just as my parishioners, but my friends, and hearing their sense of betrayal, that I have, that I have changed the place they love to the degree that they no longer feel they have any choice but to leave it, that reality lands a lot heavier with me than any intellectual disagreement we might get into around politics or theology. When community is broken, when the ties of holy love, when the sacredness of that table is compromised, that's more than just a, a spat over words said from the pulpit. I think it should cause me, maybe each one of us, to wrestle a little bit with God. What if we're wrong? What if I'm wrong? I don't know the answer to that. I do take some solace, ironically, maybe, in this story of Judas and how the ones whom Judas betrayed began to make sense of his actions, his ghost, his presence in their lives, which, which ran so contrary to everything they thought they knew, right? Even though his actions led to his, his death, his rejection by the community, there's this little glimmer of possibility in Peter's words about his friends. Remember, he tells the other disciples, remember, he was one of us. He had his share in our ministry. We loved him. Maybe we still do. Judas did what he had to do in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Maybe, Peter says, God never really abandoned Judas, even in his most heinous act of betrayal. He sat with us at that table on Jesus last night. He partook of the bread and wine. He, too, with everything dark and foreboding in his heart, shared in the love feast of the Good Shepherd. Even that one, the scriptures insist, even the one who exemplifies ultimate betrayal, even that one has a part in God's greater story. The ways of the Lord are inscrutable and unsearchable. And maybe rather than ask myself, how do I know I'm right? Maybe it's better to ask myself, how good can I get at extending the boundaries of my sympathy and my care, as Peter does, in working to love and understand somebody who sees me as the betrayer, somebody who is convinced that I am wrong and I have let them down. When we find ourselves at the brink of a broken relationship, I think it's so tempting to seek justification, right? I, I don't know about you, I start holding these imaginary debates in my head, and the great thing about an imaginary debate is that I win every single one. <laughs> but that's not how life works. The real give and take of human relationships in community is never that simple. Nobody is convinced by my most finely crafted arguing points. And the kind of sadness, that sense of betrayal that can be experienced in a place like a church, that cuts deeper than any ideology or politics. And I don't know, I don't know what God is up to in all of this. I do believe there is a bigger game at work here. That much I know to be true. In Isaiah, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. Sometimes that sounds a little bit like a threat to me, but maybe it's a promise that there is no human division so great that God's love cannot breach it in the end, that there is no betrayal so fundamental that God cannot work through it in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled, that God's economy is so much bigger than my little corner of the sky. 
And in God's economy, I suspect, at God's great table, when everything's said and done and all the tensions and trials of this life have faded into oblivion, when Judas and the Twelve sit down at that table, as they did on that final night, with Matthias there, the 13th disciple, when bread is broken and wine is shared and nobody has to depart into the night shamefaced and guilty. No one is damned to perdition. Nobody's lost. Nobody's forgotten. In that moment, the table is complete because everything is forgiven.